Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Thanks for listening to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto on the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can also listen to the episodes on the Unchained feed earlier if you subscribe there. Plus, check out all our content on our website, unchainedcrypto.com. I sympathize with the defense here. This is an uphill fight to begin with. There are millions of pages of documents, but really, I mean, you have three really strong cooperators here who were in the inner circle, who knew what were going on day to day and have been very, very credible. So I, I think the battle here was very, very difficult to begin with. And it's, it, it remains that, that way still. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the October 13th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Thinking of launching your own stablecoin? Start with the open source Stablecoin Studio Toolkit on Hedera. Start your journey at hedera.com slash unchained. Shape tomorrow, today. Vault Crafts by Popcorn is your no-code DeFi toolkit for building automated, non-custodial yield strategies. Learn more on vaultcraft.io about how you can supercharge your crypto portfolio. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, trade, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's guest is Ari Redboard, Global Head of Policy at TRM Labs. Welcome, Ari. Hey, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be on the show. So Ari and I were just discussing this before we started recording, and it's the fact that I have been spending all my days in the courtroom, and I've literally just run from there, and for the first time probably ever in the history of the show, have not really written a script. So Ari, I remember that you used to be a prosecutor, and unfortunately, I don't know the title because I did not have a chance to fill that in. So you are a former prosecutor, and I was curious for your takeaways on the SPF criminal trial so far. No, absolutely. And before we dig into this, I do want to comment on your day-to-day coverage, Laura. Like, As someone who is in D.C., not in New York every day, but is really trying to keep up with this trial, it's extraordinary to see what you've been doing. It is a masterclass uh, on the sort of you know day-to-day reporting from a courtroom, which I, I think is, is, has been done over the years, and you are doing it extremely well. So it's really, it's, it's really cool to talk to you. And honestly, you've been my source of news day-to-day <laughs> as I've tried to follow this trial. So, so thank you for that. 
Okay, great. Well, thank you. I'm glad that it's working out because I am nearly killing myself <laughs> to do it on certain days. I don't um, want to. Uh, I don't want to break it to you, but you're in week two of what is going to be like a week, many weeks long trial. So I literally sorry. had that thought earlier today. I thought, wait, this is go four more weeks. How am I going to keep going? However, the good news for me, in my opinion, is that the biggest witness so far just testified, Caroline Ellison. And obviously, I'm sure probably most people, people at least in crypto, would bet that SBF will testify. But until that moment, I think I can not have a day where I'm working from 9:30 a.m. until midnight. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yes, obviously, awesome. huge headline week. What are your takeaways about? Well, we could start with this week in particular, but also, you know, the trial in general. Sure. Look, I think this week has been an extraordinary week in that the most important witness in the trial, unless the defendant himself testifies, uh, will have provided testimony. And Caroline is a critical witness on a number of levels. One, she is the government's cooperator, right, which comes with baggage, but it also comes with the fact that she was very, very close to the, to the defendant and has intimate details about both the sort of financials that were happening, the financial uh, issues that were happening at the company, but then also sort of the way the company was run, the way Bankman Freed operated. He had tremendous trust in her. And I think a lot of that came out over the course of the last two days. So really, really extraordinary moment. And look, I mean, this is such an important witness that essentially both parties, the government and the defense, both raised this witness at in their opening statements, because the opening statements really sort of gave a roadmap of what the jury was to expect. And one of the things that the defense said is that you're going to hear from, you know, Caroline Ellison, who was the CEO of Almeida. And, and she was very much in control of that company, right? So, so the last two days, we saw a really a back and forth between how much control did she really have and what decisions were hers alone, but then what decisions were really made in the background by, um, by the defendant. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, because just this exact issue came up in the courtroom today. And by that, I mean on Thursday. So basically, this afternoon, um, somebody named Christian Drapey was the witness right after Caroline. And he said that he was a software developer at Alameda. And there was like an interesting moment. And of course, I'm speaking just from memory, not from the transcript. So I might have to revise some of this later. But um, basically what happened was, I think there was a moment when the prosecutor um, was asking kind of like who, like, you know, after um, Caroline Ellison and Sam Tribuco were named co-CEOs, who did they report to? And these kept getting objected to and sustained. And then finally, there was like a little bit of a sidebar. And then... Um, if I remember correctly, the prosecutor was able to ask, oh, were there moments when um, you realized that like Sam was directing trades and he was able to talk about specific instances? Because even though he was a software developer, he said that he talked to traders every single day because they were sort of directing his work. Um, so then he like gave instances where Sam was directing trades. He talked about Sam having access to the internal system, stuff like that. But it was just fascinating how um, initially the... Uh, defense kept trying to block, like, who were they reporting to? It was like multiple questions and they just kept objecting. Yeah, it's it's so critical. And I think something we've seen over the course of this trial is really a lot of these sidebars. And I think for folks who are not, I, I was a assistant U.S. attorney like the lawyers in the courtroom for the government for about 11 years. And those sidebars can get heated. Uh, but really what they're doing is saying, hey, you remember when we agreed to these ground rules in terms of the kinds of questions that we're going to ask? And you're having that sort of back and forth up there. And that happened a lot in the last two days, particularly around Caroline's testimony. And one thing you're not allowed to do is continue to repeat 
question after question in a certain area. And that was something obviously we were seeing the judge get upset about. But those sidebars are very, very important. Uh, I'd say for two reasons. Uh, one, because obviously they're, you're, you're basically fighting over legal issues uh, you know, at the bench, but there's something the jury sees as well. They, and the jury watches body language and the way that lawyers are behaving in the courtroom and they're and interacting with each other in the court. Oftentimes, these types of conversations will happen outside of the jury's presence, but sidebars usually happen in front of the jury. And in my experience, I've gone back to talk to jurors after I've lost uh, trials and oftentimes they will talk about the body language of the lawyers and the way we were behaving in the courtroom. And I, I think it becomes important. Oh, that's interesting. And wait, just to be clear, when you say they happen in front of the jury, does that mean they can hear the discussion or no? No, it doesn't. It's really so. So, But that's really when the jury is most interested. And that's what you always hear when you talk to jurors. They, that's when they really want to know is what is being said, <laughs> when they can't hear it, right? Because normally you have, and I don't know, I, I have not been in court, but normally you have a husher, uh, like a uh, that's a noise machine essentially up at that bench that is making oh. it impossible for jurors to hear. But essentially they still see that you're arguing. And when you're objecting, it's, you know, it's not evidence, but it's something that is in front of the jury. They will be told not to actually uh, take any of this into consideration, but we're all human beings and we take the way we watch interaction uh, into consideration to be sure. Okay. So quick question, because there have been so many sidebars. Is that a normal thing to happen or is this like unusual? You know, it happens, uh, it does happen a lot. Um, normally when a judge has made a ruling one way or another and one side keeps still <laughs> trying to get their questions in, uh, and that's when the judge will say, all right, everybody come to the bench. And it's almost like uh, you're getting put in timeout, you know, to some <laughs> extent. But it, it, I will say it happens. It often happens frequently in a lengthy trial. I think what we've seen over the last few days is, pretty, is still pretty extraordinary. Oh, meaning that it indicates to you that it is kind of like more contentious between the two lawyers than would be typical, the two or two legal teams. Exactly. Not just between the lawyers or even the government, and the prosecution, but like in the government and the defense, but that, look, there's a lot going on. There was a lot of pre pretrial motions that the judge wants to make sure are kept to, uh, as the questions are asked, uh, you want to make sure the questions are appropriate. So I would say that like this, this happens often, but it is happening particularly often in this case. Okay. Yeah. There was a really interesting sidebar yesterday, which was Wednesday, um, where basically the prosecutor um, sort of abruptly stopped her questioning of Caroline Ellison and then said, can we have a sidebar? And then when I read it later, uh, she had objected to the fact that I guess Sam Bankman fried she felt, was um, sighing at some of the testimony or like scoffing or um, laughing. And uh, she said, you know, given the nature of Caroline and Sam's um, romantic uh, relationship, which Caroline had talked about, you know, just feeling like he ignored her and she wanted more from the relationship and, you know, things like that, that it was affecting Caroline's testimony. And then the defense uh, was going on about how, I guess, um, at some point they had showed a photo of Sam where he was holding a deck of cards, but they didn't ask about it. It was, um, he was wearing, you know, well, an FDX, I'm sure you know the type of photo. He yeah. was wearing a t-shirt, his hair was big and, um, I, I'm not sure why he was objecting to the fact that the photo showed um, a deck of cards, but I think the prosecutor said, I didn't ask any questions about that. Um, so anyway, so uh, yeah, it just feels like there's a lot of subtext. It's, it's, it, I think you nailed it with that exact example, and that is a lot of what's going on. But what's interesting is, you know, if I'm a prosecutor, I'm immediately thinking, well, how do I get that into evidence, right? His, 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 essentially his behavior in the courtroom. And there, uh. are way, and there are ways you can do that. 
you can all, because what you want to be able to do is ultimately argue it to the jury. Like the way he was in court, right, is the way he was with this person, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, in 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 real life as this all happened. So I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Obviously, you can absolutely get it in if he testifies. You know, isn't it true you've been sitting here, you know, sighing and and rolling your eyes at witnesses as they've testified? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, which, that, that, that kind of thing. That, that's a way you get, that's a way you get this in, but yeah. But so, so what, my point in all of this and where I can probably be most helpful here is there's so much going on, <laughs> you know, in that courtroom that you're not even thinking of. And one thing that's, I think one thing that's really, really important is everything the lawyers do on both sides is preparing for closing argument because closing argument is the opportunity where you can say, this is what you heard, right? This is what was said. But you can only argue those things. You can't argue things that didn't happen in the courtroom. So you need to mm-hmm. you need to make sure over the course of the next six weeks that anything that you want to ultimately argue to that jury of why your client is innocent or or not guilty rather or or why your your the defendant is guilty has to come in. So you know as as an example, the lawyer for uh, SBF's attorney, the defense attorney today, was going through month by month. Did you meet with the prosecutors in December? Did you meet with them in January and February? And everyone thought this was really crazy. And it was objected to eventually when they were, like got to 11 months or something. But what they want to be able to do ultimately at closing is say, look, this person met with the government every month for a year, at least you know all, all year, okay? This person has a reason to lie to you because they are trying to save their own skin. And not only did they meet with prosecutors, but during that time they were, you know, working on your test, working on her testimony, right? They want, she told you what they wanted her to say, right? Those are the types of things you're doing, but you have to have a basis to make those arguments. And even as crazy as it sounds, and I'm not sure it would have been my, the questions I would have asked, but that's what they are trying to do there. Okay. No wonder. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that, but first we'll take a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Looking to venture into the world of stablecoins? Explore the open source Stablecoin Studio Toolkit on Hedera. Whether you're building the next big thing in Web3 or an enterprise banking and payment provider, Stablecoin Studio simplifies stablecoin issuance and management, keeping you at the forefront of on-chain finance. With seamless integration into commercial custody providers and KYC services, and built-in proof-of-reserve functionality, Stablecoin Studio streamlines development and time to market. Harness the power of stablecoins by visiting hedera.com slash unchained. Popcorn just made DeFi way easier with VaultCraft, your no-code DeFi toolkit for building, deploying, and monetizing automated yield strategies in a few clicks. Forget spending months of R&D and capital when you can instantly launch your crypto fund with VaultCraft on any EVM chain. From wallets and institutional service providers to non-DeFi DGENs, anyone can use VaultCraft to supercharge their crypto portfolios with custom-tailored cross-chain yield strategies. Go to vaultcraft.io and start building. Back to my conversation with Ari. My next question for you was going to be, you probably heard me talking about this multiple times. There are a lot of instances where the defense has been doing these repetitive questions. Judge Kaplan has called them out. The prosecution called them out earlier today. Every time we start going down that road, like I just feel like I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> I, I get bored. I start zoning out. I'm like, why are they doing this? So why are they doing it? Yeah. I mean, imagine if you're zoning out, right? How that jury is feeling. And I think that like whenever you're a lawyer on either side, uh, especially in a relatively complex case, and you know, 
the more and more I listen to the testimony here, the less and less complex I actually think it is. Um, you know, it's there, and I think that's the role of the government here to make this a very simple case. You know, hey, they took customer funds and they used them to pay off risky bets from Alameda in an unlimited type of way, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's the argument that the government is going to make. And this was criminal and it was intentional. You know, look, the defense is trying to do everything they can to be able to make the arguments I just sort of mentioned at, at closing. Hey, this person knew what she was doing. Um, one, one thing that's been a real theme for the defense is um, that Bankman-Fried was not around very often, you know? And uh, so obviously, Caroline Ellison was making decisions on her own when it came to Alameda. Well, you know, two things can be true. Uh, you know, Caroline could have been making some decisions on Alameda. Sam may have not been around, but he made the big decisions around how FDX customer funds were being used at the end of the day. But what, what they're doing here with all these repetitive questions is trying to set up the best closing they possibly can. But you cannot do that and lose the jury, you know, along the way. And I think that that's the problem. The thing about the repetitive questions is that the information has already been presented. So uh, it, it doesn't feel like it really has like another purpose. Um, but related to that, I also just wanted to ask, because I honestly was very confused. Um, you know, as far as I understand, these defense lawyers are extremely expensive. They're some of the best defense lawyers you can buy. And, you know, I'm not, hopefully they're not listening because I feel bad saying this, but they just have largely seemed so ineffectual and even unprepared. And I mean, the one day when they seemed a little bit more prepared was when they did the cross-examination of Gary Wong. But when they first started it, they just, they seemed to be floundering. It was again, the repetitive question strategy. And then against Caroline Ellison today, like it really, I was just shocked when it ended because I thought that's all they're going to do. Cause it just felt like nothing. There were a few things I, I made a little video at lunch where I talked about some of the, the things that they managed to get on the record like around, you know, their differences in like ambition or just, you know, I, I guess I, don't, I can't, I can't even remember my brain is so fried, but the point is like, I could see that maybe they're just laying the groundwork, but since they didn't do much with what they asked, it just felt very, I don't know. It, I, I just couldn't see where they were going. Yeah, no, it, it, look, I, I don't know that I can speak too much to sort of the lawyers themselves. I can, I can say this, that, you know, trials are hard. And, um, you know, I, I would say this case came to trial at unprecedented speed. I have never seen anything like it. Uh, trials like this often take years to go oh. to trial. And why do you think it, it went so quickly then? You no, know, I think it's a combination of, I think the court was pushing it, which is what a good court does, a good judge does, is make sure the parties are ready and they've got their stuff together. I think whenever a defendant is being held, so I think when he went to jail, uh, that always mo makes things move more quickly. You know, a defendant wants to go to trial when they're sitting there in jail. Um, when you're at your home on, you know, uh, with under electronic monitoring and you have TV and computers and life, you don't care that much. Um, so I think that was a huge piece of why it moved so quickly. Um, but it's hard to be ready with multiple cooperators, millions of pages of documents. So I think that's, that's a piece of it. That's not to sort of excuse anything. And the other piece is, look, I mean, I, I think different lawyers take a different approach. You know, as a prosecutor, my strategy is always to get in and get out, to ask the questions, to try to make your points and then get out. Because I think the jury appreciates that. And also, I think ultimately um, you're making a better record when you do that. But, you know, we'll see. I think closing arguments to me are really a moment of truth where, you know, what are you ultimately able to argue at the end of the day? 
And um, I think we'll see where that goes. One, one just aside, and I, I we, we've talked we talked about this case. I want to say actually, you know, an extradition. He was being held in the Bahamas, and you and I talked about this case. And I think I said a couple things. One, I said that he will waive extradition, which he did. And I also said he would plead guilty, okay, which he didn't. <laughs> and I have been wrong over and over about that point. To be honest with you, I, I don't understand how, given the sentence, federal sentencing guidelines that he's looking at, essentially life in prison, I thought that he would plead guilty, accept responsibility, and try to cooperate in some way with the government to get a downward departure from those guidelines. So I, I, it is possible, and this is just me now spitballing, that his lawyers advise that. <laughs> and and this is this is the defendant uh, sort of pushing forward with a trial. I don't know the answer to that, but it's all, but it's very, very possible. Okay. Yeah. I mean, could, maybe the poor defense is simply that thing about, I, I forget the saying, but like, since the facts aren't on their side, they're sort of limited in what they can do. Is that? It, it's a hard case. And I, was seeing, I think we're seeing very effective uh, prosecutors uh, who have a lot of evidence and frankly, great cooperators. You know, it's interesting. I think if there's one takeaway from this week, I think the defense had really one job, and that is to discredit Caroline. A, make it feel like she could have committed this fraud alone, essentially, uh, in, or at least in large part alone. And B, that she was totally non-credible because of her cooperation agreement, right? She was in the pocket of the government. She was going to testify like they wanted to. But really what we saw was a very sympathetic witness who was very, very credible, uh, who was clearly upset by the situation, who talked about the relief she felt when uh when this was all over that's a very sort of i think emotion a lot of people can relate to and quite frankly a relatively diminutive or like you know maybe weak person who would not have been making this level of decisions alone she you know you made you asked about that um you you talked about her uh, not her confidence her ambition and what she said when she was asked are you ambitious is sam wanted me to be more ambitious and i thought that was incredibly that like like that kind of define the relationship and exactly what the prosecution is trying to uh, is trying to prove here. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, just from what you said, they didn't really um, get at her credibility too much. Except there was one really interesting piece in the afternoon where they wanted to play clips from. Well, actually, it was the prosecution that wanted to play audio clips from the meeting that Caroline held on November 9th, the all hands meeting for Alameda staff, in which. Um, you know, she revealed what had happened behind the scenes and, um, and the defense, you know, went through a thing and this, this all was when the jury was out of the room, they went through, you know, some objections back and forth and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the judge allowed most of them, if not all of them. Um, but then the defense said, well, we want to submit two of our own and they only got one added. And it was one where Caroline was, uh, somebody said to Caroline, oh, you know, um, I, you know, I'm sorry for how you must feel right now. Thank you so much for, you know, we, we appreciate that you are doing this for us. And she said, oh, like, no, I, you know, honestly, it was fun. And she was like laughing a little bit, uh, but she, the, just the way she sounded, she just sounded so young and like, I'm leaning toward the word immature, but that's not it. It's because that sounds, it, it just gives a connotation. She sounded naive. naive. She sounded sort of naive and innocent and sort of like nervous and yeah, just like using an inappropriate word there and maybe like letting out some nervous laughter or something. But the point is that that was the only clip that they ended up getting played. And then hilariously, after they played it, they didn't ask the witness who at that point was Christian Drapey. They didn't, the Alameda trader, they didn't ask him anything about it. And I was like, okay. And so I thought maybe it's just to show she seemed lighthearted at one moment. 
Yeah, interesting. Really, really interesting. But I think I, I, I think that naive sort of persona is very much what the prosecution is getting at here. And it's it's unique to have a witness that uh, a cooperating witness that really doesn't feel like a cooperator. You know, really feels like someone who was there. You know, it's interesting. There was this testimony yesterday about the um, the bribe to Chinese officials to um, unfreeze you know billions in assets. Uh, yeah, in, yeah, in China, one billion dollars. One billion dollars, and it, it's interesting. So that that was would be a very highly litigated line of questioning by the government because you are not allowed to bring in external evidence to show propensity to commit crimes. Right. In other words, because he did this bribe Chinese officials, he must have misused or uh, misappropriated user funds. You're not allowed to do that. But what the government argued is that they were introducing that evidence to show Caroline's close relationship, that she was a trusted confidant, that he would have bring her into something this sensitive. So it's interesting. The government sort of gets that double whammy, right? They get in some, re- they dirty Sam up with this, this story. And yet they, and they also show um, how close they were. And I think that is the type of really um, impactful evidence, even just to show the closeness of the relationship, right? I mean, this is not a woman who is out. Uh, she, she was in the inner circle of the inner circle. And it just makes her so credible. Yeah. And then the hilarious thing that they showed afterward was her <laughs> list where she talked about, uh, I forget, some like problematic things or whatever. And then she, and she wrote, Negative one hundred fifty million for the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they asked her, "Why did you phrase it that way?" And she was like, uh, "You know, Sam had said we shouldn't write down illegal things, and I didn't want to write." <laughs> so she called it. The thing. But you know, Laura, Which like I that was that, so funny. That immediately jumped out to me too in the in the transcript. And but how credible is that? It's so credible. Like, of course, that's what happened, right? You can't make it up. And I think that is sort of how her testimony generally came out. Yeah. Well, so at this point, I'm so curious. Like, well, so how how well do you think the defense is doing, you know, what you said that their two tasks or their main tasks are? Do you feel like they're making headway or? or I, I don't. And again, like I'm not in the courtroom every day like you are, but sort of the, what, I, what I've been reading, I, I certainly don't. Um, but I, you know, look, I, I sympathize with the defense here, right? This has been, this is an uphill fight to begin with. There are millions of pages of documents. But really, I mean, you have three really strong cooperators here who were in the inner circle, who knew what were going on day to day and have been very, very credible. So I, I think the battle here was very, very difficult to begin with. And it's it, it remains that that way in the still, I'm so sorry to say this for you, early days of, <laughs> of this trial. Yeah. Well, so at this point then, um, so I know you were in AUSA, but if you were going to say that the defense has, you know, one task from here on out, like what would you think their main strategy should be to try to turn things around? Yeah, look, their their strategy from day one and really the only strategy they could have taken is this is Sam is an idiot. He is unorganized. He is, um, you know, he's disorganized. He's sloppy. He's careless. This is just Sam being Sam. This is not someone with criminal intent. That's the only thing they could have done. And really, there's only one way to kind of establish that. And I don't know if you just roll the dice and have him testify. I mean, look, conventional wisdom is you never have your client testify. I would probably be counseling him not to testify. But the reality is that, you know, sometimes you throw a Hail Mary and maybe let's see how the next two weeks go. But that might be the Hail Mary that they need to throw to see if there's any way 
that he could charm or really sort of be a sympathetic figure for the jury. I think it's unlikely, but we'll see. Ultimately, that's up to him. You know, one, one thing for folks to know as, as we approach that moment, whether or not it happens, is there's going to be a lot of discussion in court. The judge himself uh, will actually um, admonish the defendant, explain to him what his constitutional rights are, uh, that he has a right not to testify, and we'll go through all that, and you have to waive those rights. So a lot happens, uh, and it'll be a really interesting moment, but maybe that's the Hail Mary they need to throw at this point. Well, I mean, you know, I know that you obviously work in crypto and everything, so I'm shocked that you think that they probably won't, that he probably won't testify because he has spoken to 5 million different people. You really think, I I think, I bet 90% he probably is going to testify. And to be clear, Laura, it's not that I think he won't. It's that I think he shouldn't. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, I, uh, I, 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 again, like to your point, you know, his inclination immediately, which was a terrible idea, and we all knew it at the time, was to go out and speak publicly. Everything he said in every one of those interviews will be used in cross-examination of him on the witness stand. Isn't it true you said this? Isn't it true you said that? And a lot of what he said was, quite frankly, like, yes, this happened. I was in charge, and I am very sorry. You know, and, and that's going to that that will all come out on cross-examination. So, no, I mean, look, there is no defense lawyer out there who ever wants their client to testify <laughs> in a criminal trial. I mean, maybe there's some, there's probably some exceptions we can think of, but it's really, really rare. And I think I think I think he'll do himself harm. But on the flip side, like I think to your point, yeah, he's probably likely to testify given ego and and and, and quite frankly, maybe where the trial is at that point. Right. OK, well. <laughs> Ari, thank you so much for giving us your thoughts on this really, yeah, just mind-blowing week. Um, and yeah, it's always a pleasure. No, thank you so much for having me. And now now folks know like what our just com- random conversations are like. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes, yes. At least when we're talking about Caroline and SBS. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep, love it. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Today presented by veteran crypto reporter and Columbia University Knight Badgett Fellow, Michael Del Castillo. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hello and welcome to this week's Crypto Roundup. From FTX's chaotic bankruptcy and a $400 million heist, to Voyager's legal woes and a $1.65 billion settlement. Plus, Binance joins forces with Israeli authorities to freeze Hamas accounts. I'm Michael Del Castillo, a Knight Badgett Fellow at Columbia University, Tuning in from New York's Upper West Side, where you may hear the sounds of a saxophonist in the background today, celebrating the beginning of fall at a block party five floors below. This is your weekly crypto recap. After declaring bankruptcy last year, the now shuttered cryptocurrency exchange FTX was hit by a heist that saw more than $400 million siphoned off its wallets. Citing potentially lax security measures at FTX, A Wired report Monday described staffers scrambling to secure over $1 billion in assets, moving some of them to cold storage wallets provided by BitCo and, in one case, the personal wallet of a consultant hired to help keep order in the aftermath of the collapse. 
In a classic glass quarter full scenario, an unnamed former FTX staffer described the, quote, very, very crazy night to wire. Quote, we worked on it, we got it done, and we saved a massive amount of customers' money. But there was also between $7 billion and $9 billion that also went missing. Adding to the turmoil, FTX co-founder Gary Wang testified the exchange fabricated the publicly advertised numbers in its ad hoc so-called insurance fund called the Secure Asset Fund for Users, or SAFU. In court, a prosecutor asked Wang if the real number was, quote, higher or lower than the fake number. Wang said lower. In related news, after FTX competitor Binance last November reportedly topped up its own SAFU account with $1 billion, the exchange rebranded its Binance custody software to CEFU, C-E-F-F-U, a play on the Secure Asset Fund for Users acronym. In September, the SEC reportedly looked into the rebranding of what Coindesk called the, quote, supposedly separate, quote, custodian to try to better understand exactly if and how separate it is. Back in FTX land, the exchange's defunct trading arm Alameda Research is now also facing its own security doubts. A whistleblower who claims to be a former engineer at the company alleged on social media that the firm lost $190 million to inadequate security measures. The U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Federal Trade Commission have filed lawsuits against Steven Ehrlich, the former CEO of collapsed crypto lending platform Voyager Digital. Five months after Bloomberg reported Voyager had about $1.8 billion in customer claims, the CFTC accused Ehrlich and Voyager of, quote, fraud and registration failures, end quote, with plans to seek restitution and permanent trading bans. Samuel Levine, the director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, said in a statement, quote, this action reminds companies and individuals, don't play fast and loose with claims about FDIC insurance. The FTC has also reached a settlement with Voyager, imposing a $1.6 billion fee and permanently banning the company from handling consumer assets. The FTC's action centers on false claims that Voyager accounts were FDIC insured. Ehrlich allegedly siphoned off millions to his wife, adding yet another layer to the complex case. In a week marked by the escalating conflict between Israel and Palestine, Israeli authorities joined forces with crypto exchange Binance to freeze cryptocurrency accounts linked to the militant group Hamas, according to a report by Israeli tech and startup news site Kalkas Tech. Following recent attacks that resulted in over 1,000 Israeli casualties, and another 1,000 Palestinian casualties in an Israeli retaliation, the accounts were used to raise funds for the group, according to the report. Quote, With the outbreak of the conflict, Hamas initiated a fundraising campaign on various social networks, end quote. That's according to Israeli police speaking to the news site. Binance emphasized its commitment to, quote, combat finance terrorism, end quote, and noted that it had been working, quote, around the clock to support these efforts. In response to the war, crypto firms including Fireblocks and Market Across launched CryptoAid Israel to support affected citizens. However, the clampdown on Hamas crypto activities is part of a broader focus on how the group and others use digital assets. Crypto analytics firm TRM reported that Hamas had received nearly $800,000 in total through crypto, and Israeli police's Lahav 433 is collaborating with intelligence agencies 
to shut down such channels. Showing the complexity of cracking down on crypto donations, Ukraine has reportedly raised a whopping $225 million in cryptocurrency from donors supporting its fight against Russia. Binance's Industry Recovery Initiative, launched to aid crypto projects facing liquidity crises, has deployed less than $30 million of what was once said to be a $1 billion fund, according to Bloomberg. While 18 companies reportedly participated, only Aptos Labs, which emerged from the ruins of Facebook's effort to build a global currency, fully invested their pledged funds. Binance CEO Changpeng Zhao had initially touted the fund as a transparent effort to support the industry. However, details about the 14 projects financed by the IRI remain undisclosed. Quote, we didn't identify many projects who would meet our criteria, end quote, according to Dana Howe, Binance Labs' business strategy lead. The exchange has since moved $985 million back to its corporate treasury, according to the report, signaling a shift in strategy. A Binance spokesperson told Bloomberg, quote, we will keep funds available as needed, but they will sit in our corporate wallets. As the UK tightens its grip on crypto marketing, Binance faces yet another setback. Its promotional partner, rather ostentatiously named Rebuilding Society, has been blocked by UK regulators. The clampdown comes as new stringent marketing rules take effect, compelling crypto exchanges to adapt swiftly. Binance, known for its aggressive marketing strategies, now finds itself navigating a regulatory maze. Meanwhile, OKX is also making adjustments to comply with the UK's evolving crypto marketing landscape. Both exchanges appear keen to ally their operations with the new regulations to avoid penalties and, of course, maintain valuable market access. This week, the legal battle between Coinbase and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission intensified as the North American Securities Administrators Association, or NASA, filed an amicus brief supporting the SEC. The NASA argued that digital assets should not be treated as, quote, somehow special, end quote, and that Coinbase should be subject to the same regulatory obligations as other market participants. Quote, the SEC case against Coinbase isn't extraordinary, the association wrote, referencing to the Howey test, a legal framework often used by the SEC to classify transactions as investment contracts. On social media, legal experts weighed in on the case. Former FDIC attorney turned Capitol Hill consultant Todd Phillips argued that the SEC strategy, quote, doesn't make sense. Jake Chervinsky, the chief policy officer of advocacy group Blockchain Association, expressed confidence that Coinbase would win, writing that there are, quote, the far better arguments, end quote, supporting the cryptocurrency exchange presented in amicus briefs by various crypto organizations. Chervinsky emphasized that the SEC's current stance, quote, fails as a matter of text, history, precedent, and common sense, end quote. Something called BitVM, as in virtual machine, emerged as a hot topic in the Bitcoin community on Monday. Software developer Robin Linus of ZeroSync published a white paper on BitVM describing what he says is a way to make the current version of Bitcoin as programmable as Ethereum. Similar to how Ordinals was implemented last year to enable NFTs in the Bitcoin blockchain, BitMV supposedly would not require any hard-to-implement controversial upgrades to Bitcoin's core database. 
Not since Uniswap's 2020 white paper on automated market makers has a white paper caused this much stir. After initially offering a critical perspective on the white paper, Adam Back, the cryptographer and CEO of Montreal-based Bitcoin development firm Blockstream, conceded he'd misunderstood the paper. He's not alone. Bob Budley, the CEO of Bitcoin NFT marketplace Bionic Market, cautioned that, quote, BitVM is very, very complex to understand and implement, end quote. Manib Ali, the co-creator of Bitcoin Layer 2 Solution and potential BitVM competitor Stacks, took issue with calling the technology described in the paper as a virtual machine, writing on social media, this is very different from a full VM like on Ethereum or Solana. Speaking of Bitcoin, network transactions on the cryptocurrency market currently valued at $561 billion have sharply declined to around 280000 weekly, a level not seen since February following the peak around ordinals in September. The Polygon-based stablecoin Real USD, going underneath the ticker USDR, has lost its peg to the US dollar, plummeting to as low as 51 cents. Issued by Los Angeles-based Tangible Dow, the stablecoin that was backed by illiquid real estate holdings but relied on another stablecoin called DAI to achieve liquidity, ran out of token supplies, forcing it to tap into $6.2 million it says it had in a so-called insurance fund. The native tangible token TNGBL, which was offered as a reward to users who locked up their assets to help back the stablecoin, also saw a deep drop, further destabilizing the treasury. The stablecoin's price at one end rebounded uh, to $0.68, cents, but then promptly fell back to $0.53 cents with a market capitalization of about $40.9 million. The collapse may have been triggered by a rush of redemptions, eroding $11.8 million of DAI that was collateral for the stablecoin. Adding to the chaos, a user on OceanSwap swapped 131,350 WUSDR, that's wrapped USDR tokens, for less than 0.0001, let me make sure I got all those zeros right, yes, in USDC, paying a gas fee of 0.0012 BNB, or about 25 cents. Poor, poor soul. In a twist that could only happen in the crypto world, American supermarket chain Trader Joe's is suing a decentralized exchange that goes by the name Trader Joe, singular. The grocery giant alleges that the crypto platform intentionally mimicked its name. The DEX's co-founder Cheng Che Lu, a Chinese citizen residing in Singapore, is named in the lawsuit. Lawyers for the Trader Joe's supermarket argue that the crypto platform created a narrative around a fictional Trader Joe closely associating it with the supermarket's brand. The DEX's logo even features a character donning a red cap, the high-profile primary color of the grocery chain. So, next time you're shopping for avocados or altcoins, make sure you know which Trader Joe's you're dealing with. And that's all. Thanks so much for joining us today. Stay tuned to Unchained for unparalleled coverage of the Sam Bankman-Fried criminal trial. Laura is in the courtroom delivering first-hand observations and in-depth analysis of this pivotal case. With daily podcasts, videos, and written updates, Unchained is your go-to source for all developments that could redefine the crypto landscape. Visit UnchainedCrypto.com and never miss an update. 
Unchained is produced by Laura Shin with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aronovich, Megan Gavish, Shawshank, and Margaret Curia. This weekly recap was written by Juan Aronovich and edited by myself, Michael Del Castillo. Thanks so much for listening and looking forward to speaking to you next week. Have a good weekend.